0: The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber.
1: Well, would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're going to pick up today in about verse 13. Very, very difficult passage, as you well know. We've been wading in these deep waters now for quite a while. I'm simply going to entitle the message today, Baby Talk. Baby talk. Have you ever noticed that when you have a baby you just want them to say something intelligent? You just want them to say something that you can communicate with them so that you can understand? And of course the most intelligent word a baby can say is Daddy. <laughs> or in my grandchild's case, Poppy. That's what I am, Poppy. I, I, I just want you to know I have a new name. Nana and Poppy. Oh, I love it when that little child says that word. There's just something about it. I can now communicate with her. She makes sense to me. Well, you know, that's what Paul's dealing with in the church of Corinth. He has a lot of immaturity and a lot of people speaking things that literally were nonsense. In fact, building up the body of Christ has been the point of Paul's whole discussion all the way back to chapter 12. In chapter 12 and verse 7 he says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good not for one's own personal edification, never. God doesn't look at this blessing Wayne. God wants to use Wayne to bless others. He wants to use you to bless others. So the gifts he gives us and the way he manifests himself in our life is for the benefit of others. One of the key words in chapter 14 is the word ekodome, O-I-K-O-D-O-M-E. It's the word used in the Gospels and every time it's used, only three times in the Gospels, it is used to describe a building. A building, ekodome. Now, look in verse 3, or chapter 3, rather, of 1 Corinthians verse 9. Just hold your finger there in chapter 14. We'll be right back. He uses the same way. The word ekodome has the idea of a building, a finished product. Many things has to go into a finished product. Everything is for the benefit of the finished product. He says in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's what? Building. There it is right there. Now when it's translated edification or edifying or edifies, it refers not just to the building itself, but it refers to the process of building with the finished product in mind. <clears throat> the things that go into building something. I remember when we first built this auditorium. Man, it's been a long time ago. What, 10 or 11 years now? We've been in this new auditorium. <clears throat> when we built it, we, we thought it through. We did certain things for the benefit of the finished product. Nothing was just put in this building for itself. Everything was put into this building for a reason. It had a purpose, a, a goal, an accomplished goal. Matter of fact, even the fact that this auditorium does not have any windows in it. I can take you back to the day, and I see Ed Woodham back there, and I see several others that can start laughing because we had almost a knockdown drag out. I mean, I mean, the spiritual leaders of this church, I mean, the people that I would stake my life on, we sat in a room and argued over whether or not a church ought to have windows. Because somewhere in the book of Hesitations, it says, if you build a church, make sure it has windows. And everybody said, well, I've never seen a church without windows. Why would you build an auditorium without windows? And I'm serious. Ed, am I right? We left that meeting. Everybody was mad. I mean, I I I was put out. I went home and I said, "God, what is wrong with these people? Don't they understand?" And they went home thinking, "What's wrong with Wayne?" Finally, we had to come to terms with the fact, and God said, "Relationships are more important than buildings." So I said, "Well, Lord God, I had to repent again," and I said, "Well, Father, forgive me. Make it a glass house? No, not a glass house. That is all. It is. But make, it, put all the glass in it you want to, <laughs> if you if you have to. But we we did this for a reason." Why was this, was it thought through? Was that just an accidental thought that came up that caused discussion? No, everything that went into this building was forethought. We wanted to be on television one day and we knew that the churches around us had decided later on with windows to go on television, spent thousands of dollars trying to blacken the auditorium. So we said, why not just build an auditorium without any windows and you'd save all that money. We wanted to have praise pageants, et cetera. So we'd have an auditorium where we could come and and worship God in many ways. It was thought through. So everything that went on in this building, even though the foundation sat for three years and everybody wondered if we'd ever finish it, but we did. Huh, got the last laugh. Everything was thought through. The basement was built with the idea of the finished product. The auditorium was built upon that basement with the idea of the finished product. Rooms were put into this building with an idea of a finished product. Everything that went into the building was not just for that purpose that specific purpose, but was for the purpose of the greater whole, the finished product. When you build something, everything has to be thought through. You do this so that this can happen. You do this so that this can happen. Now you say, why are you spending so much time on that? Because that word edifying is one of the key words in chapter 14. And it's very important to understand. This is the way God works in the body of Christ. He doesn't just do something in Wayne's life for Wayne's benefit. He works in Wayne's life so Wayne can be a benefit to someone else so that the finished product, the body of Christ, can grow up and be edified and built up in the faith. Each time the word ekodomi is used in chapter 14, it's used this way. In verse 3 of chapter 14, look at it. The word ekodomi is translated edification. Paul uses it to show what proclaiming God's Word does for others. He says, but one who prophesies. Now, I don't have to go back and continue to redo these terms. Prophesy simply means to proclaim the Word of God. One who prophesies speaks to men for a purpose. What is that purpose? For edification. Why? To build that person up in the body of Christ. Why? Because he's got in mind the finished product that one day will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. It is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5. He says, now, I wish that you all spoke in languages. You you say, well, my Bible says tongues. We've defined this. Don't make me keep doing it. But even more that you would tell forth the word of God, not just speak in other languages. And greater is one who who tells forth the word of God than one who speaks in languages, unless he translates what he's saying so that the church might receive edifies. Why would Paul wish that everyone spoke in other languages? Because there are millions of people in this world. There's all kinds of cultures and nations. He said, I wish you all spoke in all their languages so we could get the message of Jesus Christ and his word to everyone. He uses the word in verse 12 to show that, that building others up is what they ought to be desiring more than anything else. He says in verse 12, So also you, since you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound For the edification of the church. Don't seek something that's going to edify you. Seek something that's going to edify the church. In fact, in verse 26, he uses the word to warn them. And he said, I want to tell you something. Whenever you assemble together, you better be for the purpose of edifying one another. He says in verse 26, what is the outcome then brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification building up the body of Christ. Now I want you to see something, what he's doing in chapter 14. You cannot divorce the context. The context is that comprehension, understanding, have everything to do with building up the body of Christ. If someone cannot comprehend, if someone cannot understand, the body is not going to be built up. It's not going to edify the body of Christ. Now what's his point? When one speaks in a tongue, now you understand the difference. In chapter 14, a tongue singular was the gibberish, the babbling that was going on in Corinth. All of it hooked into the oracles of Delphi 30 miles down the road. When someone speaks in a gibberish, in a babbling, which no one can understand, even the one speaking, then it builds up no one in the body of Christ. It's just useless noise is all it is. No one can be built up by that which cannot be comprehended and understood. Well, today we push a little further in chapter 12, and I hate to tell you, but Paul doesn't get any lighter. He bears down even more. I'll be so grateful when we get to chapter 15. When you preach verse by verse, you just have to take it as it comes, and that's all I'm doing. Three things. First of all, the nonsense of speaking in an unknown language. The nonsense. The literal nonsense of speaking in an unknown language. Verse 13, therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now, that little word, therefore, Is translated that way in the New American Standard. If you have a King James Bible, it's translated wherefore. That's a better translation because the word in the Greek is more the wherefore. You say, what's the difference? Therefore, wherefore? Oh, there's a difference. Oh, there's a difference. Therefore can just hinge on another point based on what's been said. But the word wherefore takes it a little bit different. It's it's, it's the word D-I-O-P-E-R, the offer. It's the word that actually presupposes a concession on Paul's part. Now, you have to understand something here. I can almost see Paul saying, <sighs> when he's talking to the Corinthian church. It's exactly the way he feels. This is the word of concession. You people just exhaust me, is the idea here. What he's, <laughs> they were a tough group, folks. They were a tough group. You can't teach them. Why? Because they insisted on having this emotional experience of speaking in another language. They insisted on it. It was so emotionally gratifying to them that Paul was running up against a brick wall trying to tell them that it was no no use in the body of Christ. So, he's not changing his mind by making this concession. He's only changing his approach. And in doing so, he's hoping that he can show them that it absolutely makes no sense in what they're doing. He wants to show them that this unknown language, this gibberish, this a-tongue, singular, is nonsense. Verse 13, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. The word for speaks there is that word we've looked at several times since chapter 12. It's the word laleo. You say, what's the difference? Laleo in its root understanding is to make noise, to make sounds. Yes, it can be speaking, but when you speak, you're just making noise, making sounds. In Corinth, they chose to make noises, to make sounds. They called it a language, but no one could understand it. He says, therefore, let one who speaks in these noises pray that he may interpret. Now, the present middle imperative is used here. That's a command. <laughs> and the middle voice is, buddy, you better make this choice yourself. And the present tense means it's got to be going on the very moment you do it. Paul drops a command on him. He says, if, you're good, if you insist on doing this, then friend, This is not a suggestion, this is a command right from the Apostle Paul, at the same time this person is making this sound that doesn't mean anything, he'd better be praying that he has an understanding of what it means, that he can translate what he's saying. I want to tell you something, there's a note of sarcasm here, you cannot get around it, you cannot get around it. I think the Apostle Paul has literally put out, and he's getting a little sarcastic here. Why would you say that, Wayne? Because you cannot translate gibberish. That's what was going on in the Oracles of Delphi 30 miles down the road. They had their interpreters, their translators, but the language meant nothing. It was just a babbling that came from a woman that got high on, on drugs, basically herbs, and she got so high, she got into an ecstatic emotional frenzy and said stuff that meant nothing. And he says, listen to me. You better be, When you, the moment that stuff comes out of your mouth, you better be praying at the same time that you have the ability to translate what you're saying. There seems, I'm telling you, there's a note of sarcasm in what he says. And again, we must look at the context, what's going on. The whole context of chapter 14 is what's going on in public worship. They were coming together. Evidently, there were those who would stand up and speak in an open assembly like this one, and they would speak a gibberish that nobody could understand. It made no sense at all, and it was beneficial to no one, and no one can translate it. By giving this command, Paul is showing that what they're doing is literally nonsense. But not only were there those speaking in this gibberish in the open assembly, he goes on to say that there were those praying in this same kind of gibberish in the same situation. Verse 14 of chapter 14. For if I pray in a tongue, now, a tongue, a gibberish, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Just as it makes no sense to speak in a gibberish that no one understands, it makes no sense to pray in a gibberish that no one understands. Now, listen to me. No matter how emotionally gratifying the experience is, it makes no sense whatsoever. Verse 14 again, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, what does it mean when he says, "My spirit prays"? First of all, that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Not one time in chapter 14 is the Holy Spirit ever referenced to the what they were doing in speaking in a gibberish in a tongue. Not one time. He speaks of his own human spirit. He says, "My spirit," not "the spirit." My spirit. And that's in the text. So we must understand that he refers to his own human spirit. The word for spirit is pneuma. You know what pneuma is? Pneuma is the word for breath. For breath, but it's also the emotional center of man. The spirit of man is the center, the emotional center of man. It's where God's spirit comes to live in. It's the emotional, it's, it's what controls us. Paul says, if I speak in a gibberish, my breath prays and makes sounds, but it, it, it is definitely an emotional experience, but there's a problem to it. There's an emotional experience going on here. X words are being said, or, or at least noises are being made, but there's a problem to it. Go on. If I pray in, my, in a spirit, my spirit, or my tongue, rather, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The word for mind is the word nous, N-O-U-S. And that's the word that means the understanding, the understanding. Paul says that if he were to pray in a gibberish, and he uses a hypothetical situation here, that he might get an emotional high from it. It's certainly an emotional experience, and certainly there was something that came out of his mouth. The breath was used to speak it, but there would be no understanding of what's being said. And if there's no understanding of what's being said, then the body of Christ is not being edified, is not being equal me, is not being built up. Therefore, I'm only gratifying myself. I'm not using this, whatever I call it, is not being used to benefit the body of Christ. And that's the bottom line of his whole discussion. Why in the world would you ever do that when nobody in the body of Christ can be benefited from it in the sense of being built up in the faith? So if the body of Christ is not edified, What's the use of it? Paul does not deny that a man can pray in his emotional being. And words, perhaps even groanings, can even be uttered. He doesn't doesn't deny that at all. But what he says is, if he prays without understanding, then what good is it? Why Why would he want to do that? He doesn't even know what he's saying. He's praying in a nonsense language. Verse 14, for if I pray in a gibberish... My spirit prays, it's an emotional experience and certainly there's breath used and words or, or at least sounds made. But my mind is unfruitful. The word unfruitful, ah, without, carpos, fruit. What is the fruit of speaking? It's understanding. He says there is no understanding. So therefore, there's no good. Conclusion, this person is having a definite emotional experience. But the pleasure of that emotional experience bypasses any rational intelligence. So this invalidates that experience as being beneficial to anyone in the body of Christ, including the one who's doing it. Other than an emotional time that he's having, there is no other benefit in the body of Christ for what he just finished doing. Verse 15, he says, what is the outcome then? That word, what is the outcome then is is more literally translated, what what then is there? (laughs) I mean, Paul says, to speak or to pray in a gibberish makes no sense, so what's the answer to the whole thing? And he gives the answer, and for Paul it's very simple, He says, for me, I shall pray with the Spirit, and I shall pray with the mind also. In other words, I'm going to pray. Yes, it's an emotional experience when I pray. But when I pray, I'm going to pray with an understanding so that I'll know what I'm praying. Then he says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I shall also sing with the mind also. What I sing, I want to understand. And I tell you, put the two together. What a beautiful contrast. Just like he doesn't want you to pray without understanding. Certainly, you don't want to sing without understanding. I love the singing this morning, it ministered to my heart. And I love singing the old hymns, how firm a foundation, and the great hymns that we sing. And if I couldn't understand what I was singing, then what good is it? It means nothing. The mind and the spirit must be on the same page for the experience to be beneficial to anyone in the body of Christ. Otherwise, it's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. You know, I'm constantly asked, Wayne, what do you think about speaking in tongues? That's the way everybody asks it. They use the word plural. They don't understand that tongues, plural, means languages, known, understandable, languages. A tongue, singular, is referring to the gibberish that was going on in Corinth. To say, Wayne, what do you you think about speaking in tongues? And here's my answer. Here's my answer to you. Here's my answer to anybody else who comes to me. I, I simply say, my answer is, I cannot deny any experience you've ever had. I cannot deny that. I cannot deny the emotional ecstasy that it brought you in that experience. I cannot deny that. If you want to pursue that, that's between you and God. But my answer is, the key is not what I think about it. The key is what you think about it. And if you think it fits in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you're wrong, period. You're wrong. It's an experience, but you cannot ground it in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Wherever you want to put it, I don't care. That's not, I'm not here to run your life. I'm not here to make choices for you. I'm not here to follow you around. I'm just simply here to serve the word of God and that's what I see in the word of God. And the whole key is it's nonsense to speak in a gibberish that no one can understand. Even the person speaking it, he doesn't even know what he said, if he said anything. So the nonsense of speaking in an unknown language. Secondly, the negative of speaking in an unknown language. You see, there's something we don't realize. The context again is what's going on in public worship in Corinth. When they came together, there was something. These people were standing up having a wonderful emotional experience, but they had forgotten one cardinal rule of what you do in public worship. After coming to his own conclusion of only praying and singing in that which he can understand, it says in verse 16, Paul says, Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at your giving of thanks? since he does not know what you're saying. <laughs> I love translation, don't you? Paul, Paul uses again another hypothetical situation. He says, otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit. Now, the, if, that little phrase, if you bless in the Spirit. The word bless is effligeo. It took me a long time to understand this word. There's two words for blessed. There's the blessed, makarios, which is used in Matthew 5, which means totally, inwardly, spiritually satisfied. Then there's the word efflegeo. It's a praise word. It's what you use to praise God with. In fact, when you bless your food, I mean, how many of you bless your food before you eat it? I've been in enough foreign countries now, I do it all the time. (laughs) God, I'll get it down. God, you keep it down. But the word bless, when you, for years I just thought this was a mechanical thing that somebody taught me when I was growing up, and I really didn't need to do it at all until I understood the word. And when you're asking God to bless the food, you're asking God to speak well of the food. Now, what does God do when He speaks? He creates. And when He creates, it's good. That's why I bless the food. Because I know what I'm putting in my body. Have you read the ingredients on half the stuff you eat? Especially you, you folks in West Point, I bet the cafeteria is a wonderful place. You need to take this to heart. <laughs> I know when I was in school, <laughs> mystery meat was about every third day. You know, we prayed, oh God, I don't know if I'm eating Fido or Trigger, but you bless it. You speak well of it. That's what the word means. It's a praise word. Speak well of. Speak well of. He says, otherwise, if you praise, now listen to me, if you think you're praising God and you're only praising God with your spirit, you're bypassing your intelligence. If you speak in an unknown tongue intending to praise God with it, and you think that's what you're doing in an open assembly, Paul shows a negative effect it has on others. How will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks? Oh, 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 I see what you're saying, Wayne. Do you mean mean that when I do something like that, I need to be considering others when I do it? (laughs) That's the whole point. Because you see, when you speak in a language or pray in a language that doesn't make any sense, you're only thinking about yourself, you're not thinking about anybody else they don't have a clue what you're doing. The term "ungifted" refers to one who simply does not understand. And you know what the word is? <laughs> we get a certain word from it. Let me spell it to you, and you will get it. I d i o t e s. That's the word. Idiotus means somebody who's ignorant, somebody who does not understand, somebody who is unlearned. You know who he's talking about? What if a lost person dropped into your service? Corinth was a pagan area. And Corinth was well used to hearing this kind of gibberish in the the temples of Delphi right down the road. And and also in their own temple right there in Corinth. When I was there and spent a day there, they said, Wayne, this went on in every temple in Corinth. It didn't go on in Athens. It didn't go on in Ephesus. It didn't go on in Thessaloniki. It didn't go on in Philippi. It didn't go on in other churches, but it went on there. Now, what's that lost person who comes out of that pagan background going to think you're doing when you stand up and do that? You think, he says, how can he say, amen to what you're saying. Because he doesn't have a clue what you said. The word amen carries over from the Hebrew idea. It means, let it be so. Let it be so. Amen, that is true. Let it always be so. It is said in total acknowledgement of what is going on. Now, since a person can't understand, how can he say amen? As a matter of fact, he'll go on in chapter 14 to show you that he thinks that everybody's crazy because they're doing what they're doing. Because he can't understand a thing that's going on. I thought of something funny with that amen. How many remember Raymond Gustin when he was in our church? Remember Raymond? <laughs> Craziest human being that ever walked on two feet. He told me one time, he said, You know, Wayne, that word amen. There are three kinds of amens in the South. I said, What's that? He said, Well, there's the kind that puts the emphasis on the first syllable. Amen. And then there's the people who put the syllable, the, the emphasis on the second syllable. Amen. And then he says there's the happy chuckler. <laughs> amen. Amen simply means let it be so. Yes, it is true. Let it be so. Now, how can a person who doesn't understand you or understand me rejoice in what we're saying? How can they say, yes, that's right. Let it be so. Can you see the necessity of speaking in a known language? The person who is praying in a tongue, a gibberish, is getting an emotional high out of it and even thinks he's blessing God by doing it. But he's the only one getting anything out of it because nobody else understands, and particularly the ungifted, the unlearned, they don't have a clue what's going on. And God is not the author of confusion. So in verse 16, otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks? Here it is, since he does not know what you are saying. That's the negative effect of speaking. In any language that nobody can understand. Not even a gibberish in any kind of language. That's why he says earlier if you're gonna speak in a known language, you better translate it because it doesn't do any good. And particularly when you speak in a gibberish, it doesn't help anybody. When the Holy Spirit authors a gift in us, everyone should be built up, everyone should be edified. When the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, it is not for our benefit, it is not for our own emotional experience, it is for the benefit. Of others. This is what gifts are all about. Not for us, but for others. God gifted us so that others might be built up in the faith, edified as the Word goes. Look back in chapter 3, I want to show you something. Some of you may not have been with us all the way through, so make sure you understand the context. I'm not violating the context. This is not an agenda that I have. I'm just trying to stick right with what Paul is saying. And in chapter 3, I want to show you. He's already identified this church. He's already identified this church. Matter of fact, if you go back a little further than that, I'll come to that in a minute. Look down down in uh, verse 12 of chapter 1. I want to show you what every person in that church was doing. Not a few, not a few, not a faction, every one of them. He says in verse 11, I have been informed that there's, there's quarrels among you. Then verse 12, I mean this. Now look at the next phrase. That each, each one of you, not some of you, not one or two of you, every one of you is saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And then, of course, the real spiritual ones say, I am of Christ. That's the hardest group to work out because they're the ones who have the right person, the wrong motive. And he says, What are you doing? What are you doing? You're dividing the whole church. You think Christ is divided? Is his whole argument there? We'll look in chapter 3 and you find out why. This is the greatest, most taught church in the scriptures. Not the greatest, but the most taught church in scripture. Paul's been their pastor. Apollos has been their pastor. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. There was a time, he points back to when he first went there and the church was born. And he says there's a time to be a baby. And you were a baby back then. That's okay. That's all right. But when you're first birthed into the kingdom of God, you're going to act like a baby. He says, there's also a thirst to being a baby. I gave you, gave you, pointing back to a certain time. Milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Okay, so far there's no indictment to them whatsoever. But here it comes in the middle of chapter uh, verse two. Indeed, he says, even now you're not yet able. Now that's their problem. They've never grown up. They're still in the nursery. They're immature. Babies act like babies. For you are still fleshly. Sarkinese, or Sarcico's. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? In other words, you have still refused to grow up. So what's he dealing with in Corinth? Nothing's changed from chapter 3 to chapter 14. It's the same group of people. The same group of people that are full of quarrels in chapter 5, they wouldn't discipline anybody. In chapter 6, they were suing everybody. In chapter 7, they had marriage turned upside down. In chapter 8 through 10, they were using their knowledge to, to beat up their weaker brother. In chapter 11, they were desecrating the Lord's Supper. They haven't changed any. And babies act like babies. You ever been around a baby much? You know, a baby only is interested in what feels good to themselves. You ever notice that? I know, it's funny Funny where that comes from because you, who, who teaches them this? <laughs> I guess they must be born in Adam, all right? But when they're born, I want to tell you something, they only think of themselves. They're not thinking about you. No sir, buddy. They'll whine and wail in the middle of the night and they want you to get up and they could give a rip that you've only had an hour of sleep. They don't care. That's a baby. baby is only interested in what pleases them. And I'll tell you another thing about a baby, they babble all the time and make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And the beautiful thing is, one day they start growing up. And what's the first signal that they've grown up? They start talking in a language you can understand. What's going on in Corinth? I don't see how you miss it. I don't see how you miss it. And I know I'm making some of you sad and mad or glad. You're not neutral right now. Nobody's neutral in here right now. Some of you that have had this experience, you're already mad. I've told you... Every time I've approached these verses, just be mad. Just be mad. But you go home and you check it out and you see what God's Word has to say. In the context, don't pick up that book that you read. No, sir. That's the problem now. We're all bookites and themeites and TVites. The nonsense of speaking in an unknown language, the negative of speaking in the unknown. You know what the negative is? The negative is there's people among you, they don't have a clue what you're doing, and you're confusing the stew out of them. Why don't you say something they can understand? And finally, the necessity of speaking in a known language. The believers of Corinth were dragging this nonsensical speech, a tongue, Paul calls it, definitely differentiating that from tongues plural, which are languages that are known and understood, dragging it into their worship services. Paul seeks to correct them once again in verse 18. He says, I thank God. I speak in tongues more than you all. I speak in languages more than all of you. Now, again, don't, don't make me keep having to say this, but we've done this over and over and over again. If you had not been here, I'm sorry. But the word tongues goes back to chapter 12. He defines it there, geneglasun, families of languages, known, understandable languages. Why would Paul speak in tongues more than they did? Why would he speak in languages more than they did? Because he was the greatest missionary of that time. And if you've studied any of the history of the culture of that area, they had more dialects in that day than they even have today. And so Paul is trying to say, hey, I speak in languages all the time, but I'm also translating it because I understand what I'm saying. And I'm telling people the good news of God. It's prophesying. It's telling forth the word of God, which I want you to do. But then he says in verse 19, now watch this. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also. Now it comes back into the context of just being in, a, in an open assembly rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. The bottom line is, Paul says, hey, I'd rather have five words of something that people could understand than 10,000 words in a tongue. And at that particular point, you could say a tongue, that gibberish certainly, he wouldn't want that. But also any language that he didn't understand. He says, when I speak to people, I want to understand what I'm saying and I want them to understand what I'm saying. The word 10,000 there is the word that's just really written in. It doesn't really mean 10,000. It means an unestimable number of, of words. It's the word used in Revelation. We get the word myriad from it. Myriad upon myriad. I know you can't estimate it. It's so many, it's beyond counting. And Paul says, if you give me every bit of words in a language that nobody can understand, and I, you can you have it. Just give me five words in, in a language that people can understand because that's all I'm looking for in my life. And then the contrast then would be the 10,000 against the five words. Paul sums it up very well. I can hear somebody say, well, yeah, but Paul is referring to speaking in the church. What I do in my closet is okay. It's okay. Well, I guess so. If you want pure emotion with no understanding of what's going on, if you're bound and determined to speak in a gibberish that no one could ever understand, then I believe Paul would say, I see it as nonsense. But if you're going to do it anyway, I can't stop you. But I really would wish that you'd grow up. That's been the answer I've tried to give to people all along. Hey, do what you're going to do. Do what you're You're going to do. You're going to anyway. You're going to anyway. Matter of fact, I was thinking about when I was preparing this message. Here I am resigning. There's a lot of people in Chattanooga saying, will he hurry up and leave? Maybe somebody else will come in and make you feel better about that experience. But as long as I'm here, I'm not going to make you feel any better about that experience. Because what I see in the Word of God, I see in the Word of God. Somebody's going to have to come with the Word of God, not your experience, and show me this is not what Paul is saying. And we've just been in it now for 101 messages. We kind of understand the context. Paul is saying, hey, you do whatever you want to do. But there's something that you might need to remember. There's something that you might need to remember. Go back to chapter 3. I want to show you something. This might help you in your decision. If you're going to go on with it, that's all right. But let me show you this. Chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. That foundation, of course, is Christ, and another is building upon it. That's another teacher that came after him, then one after him. But each man can each man be careful how he builds upon it. And then he says, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And then he broadens his context just from teachers to everybody. And he says, a person who becomes a believer becomes a builder. And he's building a work that is one day going to be judged at the bema seat of Christ. It's either a work that is done out of the emotionalism of his flesh, or it's a work that is done out of his faith walk and trusting what God says. For pure righteousness only comes by faith, which is enacted upon God's Word. Romans 1:17. Verse 12 says, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. What do you think that is? Because when you put fire to it, because it's going to be tested by fire, remember that that fire is going to consume. What does it do to precious stones? It only refines it. So that's got to be the work of faith. That's got to be what God does and not you. That's got to be what God empowers in you. As we saw in the gifts in chapter 12, God energizes the gift. God energizes the ministry. God energizes the result. And if it's God energizing it, it's going to last. And whatever deed you do is going to go into this building and the fire is not going to consume it. But if it's of the flesh, if it's just pure emotion, if it's just an experience somebody's chasing after, if it means nothing in the body of Christ, look out because that is wood, hay, and straw because it's not been useful in the kingdom. Verse 13, each man's work will become evident. And of course, we understand that. Each man means each man separate and apart from somebody else. That means I'm not going to be standing there with you and nobody else is going to be standing there with you. You can hate my guts until the day Jesus comes back, but you'll stand on your own, your own two feet. All I'm trying to do is be a friend to you and say to you, think it through, think it through, think it through because there's accountability to what we do down here. Each man's work will become evident. Phonorosis, it means there's a light going to be turned on and nothing's going to be hidden. Nothing is going to be hidden. For the day will show it. I think that's the day. You have to come to your own conclusion. I think that's the day of Christ, the day we rapture, the day we see Him. Each man, the day will show it. The word show it is used in verse 11 of chapter 1. It means to be informed. There's going to be information given on that day you don't have down here. You see, there's certain motivations of people's hearts. It's just nothing more than pure flesh that we don't know about. They seem so sincere and they act so sincere and their experience seems to be so genuine. But there's someone else bigger than me and someone else far beyond me that's examining it and one day that work will be judged. Not me, I was judged at the cross. God just simply wants to reward us. That day is coming. It says, it to be revealed with fire. word are reveal apocalypsis. The, cover's gonna, the curtain's going to come up. The cover's going to come off. And the motives of men's hearts are going to be judged. And God knows where it comes from. God knows where it comes from. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved. Yet so as through fire. <laughs> what he's saying there is, hey, He's not teaching that a man can have a root of Christ and not have any fruit in his life. What he's saying is what God starts and what God does cannot be burned by fire. And all I'm trying to tell you is, folks, listen, think it through. Think it through. Is an emotional experience worth sacrificing a usefulness in the body of Christ? And if I'm going to speak something that I don't understand, and I'm going to speak something that nobody else understands, what good is it doing anybody other than giving me an emotional high at that very moment? Other than that, it means nothing. Because it bypassed my mind so there's no intelligence that can be attached to it. Well, that's why I call the message, Baby Talk. My little nephew, that's Dinah's brother's little boy, two years old, Bailey. He's he's as big as a ten-year-old. Good grief, that's the biggest kid I've ever seen. I mean, he doesn't walk, he stomps. He's like a small miniature stump. I don't know telling what this kid's going to be when he grows up. He called his grandmother, my mother-in-law, the other day, and he said, Mama? And she just got so excited when she heard Bailey on the phone and thought he was going to say something intelligent. And she said, Yes, Bailey. He said, Boing, 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 boing. That really ministered to her. But that's just the way babies are. There's no benefit to anybody other than the emotional experience of being around them. They contribute nothing until they grow up and they speak language that is clear so people can understand and relate. That's the key. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.